Hello, this is Katherine Cunningham. Thank you for joining us for the Natural Intelligence Worldwide Podcast. Who would have thought before March 11th that our world would be turned upside down by a microscopic virus? But today, we have the COVID-19 pandemic crisis well-rooted in 199 countries and territories. Dr. David Nabarro is a special envoy of COVID-19 to the United Nations and the former executive secretary to the World Health Organization. At the time of my interview with him, there were 333,000 cases. Less than 36 hours later, the WHO reported 465,915 cases worldwide. The pace and scale of transmission of this virus is truly extraordinary. And we, the citizens of the world, lie at the heart of the solution to break the chains of transmission and bend the global outbreak curve. Clear from my interview with David is that physical distancing and sheltering in place is mission critical now for every person, everywhere. As well, it's essential to be well and rightly informed about the virus from the world's leading experts. So join me in learning from David about the emergence of the coronavirus, the cause and casualty of the transmission, what it's going to take and how long to mitigate and eradicate the virus, and who must we support the 59 million healthcare workers on the ground risking their lives to take care of the sick. This is Catherine Cunningham from Natural Intelligence Media. I'm here with Dr. David Nabarro, who's a strategic director of 4SD and a co-director of the Imperial College Institute of Global Health Innovation. He's just appointed as a special envoy to the World Health Organization, so WHO, the Secretary General's special envoy to COVID-19. And David, you've worked before on other viruses and their spread the Ebola being one of them, and also as the Executive Secretary General for the World Health Organization. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. So given that I have a true expert in pandemics and viral disease in front of us here, I just think it's important to talk about the origin. What is this COVID-19 virus? I really want to hear from someone who's worked in pandemics all his professional life on this. I know it's relational to, it's in the same family as SARS, and we've had these epidemics as well spread. So can you tell us about the virus, its sort of ecosystem that it lives in? In, and then what are the conditions that created this perfect storm for this virus to, to go pandemic? Thanks very much indeed. Let's start with how infections emerge and start from scratch in our human society. The majority of new infections come from the animal kingdom and they jump from animals to humans. They're what we call zoonoses. The current covid 19 virus is a coronavirus that appeared in late December 2019 in Wuhan in China. It is thought to have come from an animal. It's not clear which animal it came from, but the usual pathway is that they reach humans via bats. And so the hypothesis is that the virus came from an animal perhaps in a food market in Wuhan, and then via a bat, then infected humans. We do not have precision as to where this virus came from. What we do know is that it is a novel coronavirus, which is 
a group of viruses that are known to humans, but there are not very many of them that we know about. They do cause the common cold. They cause a virus that appeared in 2002, leading to, in Southeast Asia, severe acute respiratory syndrome, or SARS. And they also caused another virus that has led to Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS. This novel coronavirus was picked up because it was associated with acute respiratory distress syndrome among people in Wuhan. The number built up in December and January 2019 and 2020, and it was quickly clear that this virus had two important properties. Firstly, it is highly transmissible between humans. And secondly, it causes an illness in about 20% of those that it infects, and it has a fatality rate that is currently believed to be around 2%, plus or minus. It tends to lead to severe disease and death in older people in the work that's been done so far. So that's the origins of the virus. And just one more point, it's what's called an RNA virus. That's the kind of nucleic acid that there is in the virus. And that RNA is capable of taking over the cells inside a human body and causing really a, a nasty illness. The genetic sequence of this virus was discovered quite quickly and was immediately made available by Chinese researchers so the rest of the world could know what the virus is. So tell me this, if one then becomes infected, does this virus then succumb to one's immune system entirely if you're a healthy person? So that means that it, it's not residual in your system year to year. Is there a natural sort of life cycle for this virus in one's person? And then also if we talk about transmission, you know, will there be a life cycle of transmission for this disease means that at one point we can look at an end to at least this viral infection spread, or could it potentially, if we don't take the proper social distancing and so efforts, just continue to, to spread? The virus gets into the cells of the human host, and in within those cells, it basically takes them over. Now, the main area that it tends to damage is the respiratory tract. Unlike common cold, which tends to affect the upper part of a host respiratory tract, the coronavirus 19 goes into the middle part of the respiratory system, that is the parts of the lungs that not so much where the actual exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide takes place, but in the tubes at the top end of the lungs. And the result is an illness which is characterized by high fever and a dry cough, together with quite severe chest pain and shortness of breath. At a later stage, in some people, the virus also leads to disease in the lower parts of the lung, where gas exchange takes place. And that means that it can lead to not just shortness of breath, but reduced amounts of oxygen coming into the body. And that in turn can be very dangerous indeed. The virus is transmitted from person to person through respiratory secretions. And the way in which it's actually passed is in droplets that come up when a person coughs into their throat and then coughed out 
And the tiny droplets can actually move about up to two meters from an infected person. And if a non-infected person is within two meters and the, is breathing in the droplets, then that in turn leads to the spread of infection to a second person. So it's a disease that is conveyed in droplets where the virus moves into the lungs of a non-infected person and can start the illness. On average, one infected person infects three other non-infected people. Now that's a high number, which means that COVID-19 is highly transmissible. Uh, eventually, an infected person gets rid of the virus, basically overcomes it through their immune system. Uh, they will subsequently have antibodies against the virus, which means that it's pretty certain that if they are exposed, they will not get infected. They have immunity. At the moment, we anticipate that there will continue to be outbreaks of this disease associated with the COVID-19 virus. As long as there is a significant proportion of people in a community who are susceptible, who do not have antibodies, but we do not know what level of immunity there needs to be in a community to prevent outbreaks from forming. And so at the moment, because this is a new virus, our control strategies are based on identifying people with the disease and isolating them in order to break any chains of transmission that might be building up. And in that way, we reduce the likelihood of a major outbreak developing. But we have to get working really quickly to break chains of transmission when an outbreak starts. Because if we don't, given the ease of this disease being communicated from one person to other people, a major outbreak can build up very quickly indeed. So this chain of transmission, are there certain conditions that one can create that breaks this chain of transmission? You speak of isolation, but are there certain populations or groups where this is really hyper important? I know there was an emphasis with Dr. Ryan from WHO and the emergency response team this morning about India being of concern with 415 cases, which seems so few, but the focus really on India because obviously of the crowding and the distance that people have to one another and, and culturally too, a warm, a warm culture. I'm wondering if there are lessons somehow from how China is dealing with the curve of the crisis and breaking those chains of transmission that India can then pick up on. Can you share something about the conditions of an environment that can help us break these chains of transmission? Thank you very much indeed. The first step in breaking chains of transmission is the very basic task of finding people who have the disease confirming that they have the disease, in making sure they are isolated as quickly as possible and cannot communicate it to others, treating them if they have severe illness, and most importantly, finding those with whom they have been in contact since they had symptoms, and ideally two days beforehand, and then going and finding these contacts, keeping them under surveillance, and if they have symptoms, testing them and if they're positive, isolating them and getting them treated. So it's a constant process 
of trying to prevent people with the disease from infecting other people. So the first requirement to prevent a new case of COVID-19 from starting an outbreak is rigorous efforts to identify quickly, confirm and isolate, and then trace contacts, identify them, check to see whether they also have the disease, and if they do, then isolate them as well. Now, that requires two things, a well-organised public health service that reaches into all communities, and secondly, full cooperation of the community to participate fully and willingly in the process of case identification and isolation. Now, if people are very close together and are living in close-knit surroundings, then uh, there is a much greater likelihood of transmission building up rapidly and a new outbreak developing quickly simply because there are more opportunities for transmission. That's why there's a second part to the control strategy, which is trying to encourage people to maintain physical distance from each other. And we say that two meters is the desired physical distance, because if you're more than two meters away from an infected person, you are extremely unlikely to have their droplets, if they cough or sneeze, from coming across and infecting you. So physical distancing is at the heart of reducing opportunities for transmission. If in a community people are in the habit of being very, very close to each other, then physical distancing becomes difficult. In order to increase the opportunities for physical distancing, governments sometimes shut down places in a community where people gather together closely, like tea shops or restaurants or places of worship. And that's something that people get very disturbed about because in closing down aspects of a national economy and going further sometimes and requiring people to stay at home away from others, you are both disturbing the social cohesion of a community and also the economic activity as well. So this desire of governments to increase physical distancing is one that should only be introduced when it's really necessary. But given the amount that COVID-19 is now spreading across the world, more and more governments are actually introducing physical distancing measures. We've seen from China that when they had very serious and intense outbreaks with lots and lots of transmission underway, for example, in Wuhan, they introduced physical distancing by asking everybody to stay at home, or what in some countries is referred to as sheltering in place. Occasionally, the term lockdown is used to describe it. And that improves physical distancing and is absolutely necessary. And China did it in a very rigorous way with full cooperation of the population, as well as a lot of involvement of community wardens linked to the public health services. We've seen the same approach used in South Korea and in Singapore and in Hong Kong, and it's been used to very good effect. That's because these countries knew what to do as they experienced SARS or severe acute respiratory syndrome in 2002. Other countries have been slower to introduce 
physical distancing, even though they know they have uh, COVID-19 outbreaks occurring. And when the physical distancing is introduced slower, then that seems to be associated with higher levels of infection, and that can lead to major problems. So the Chinese, South Korean, and Singapore experience is really important and needs to be followed because early introduction of case finding and contact tracing with testing accompanied by physical distancing seems to be the best way to reduce the number of cases and, as you've just said, to bend the outbreak curve. So in bending the outbreak curve, we can, if we go through this period of social isolation for a period of time, then the antibodies that people who've been infected and have strong immune systems will kick in and those that are infected essentially will go through that period, that cycle of, of the infection and their outcome determined. And at that point, then if we contain somehow these different spreads and we prevent further outbreaks in different parts of the world, then you're saying this coronavirus can run its, its course and essentially our species develops as a whole a greater immunity to further effect of this coronavirus in years to come. Is that right? I mentioned that new outbreaks are occurring when people with coronavirus go into a place where there is not much disease. But I want to point out that although there are a lot of people who've got coronavirus in the world right now and people who've had it and got better, there are still vast numbers of people who are susceptible. And in the view of the World Health Organization, the best way to deal with this challenge is to be on high alert and to have public health measures in place so that individuals with the disease can be detected and isolated so as to reduce spread and make sure that any outbreak that occurs is suppressed and then stopped. It's not appropriate to just let the outbreak run so that there is a buildup of people who've had the disease in the community, and then that reduces the number of susceptibles and the overall pandemic subsides. If we did that, there would be very high levels of suffering and death, and health services everywhere would be terribly overloaded. That means that for now and the foreseeable future, the strategy has to be one of being on high alert, maintaining strong defences and closing down outbreaks as soon as they happen. Sometimes that also includes requiring people who've come from places where there is a lot of transmission to isolate themselves for 14 days to check that they haven't got the disease. Uh, we cannot, I think, assume that in the near future, this pandemic will subside and the world will be able to say that we are free of the threat of COVID-19. It'll be necessary to stay on high alert for the foreseeable future and to do everything possible to close down new outbreaks early to prevent them from becoming established. It may be possible over time to develop a vaccine against COVID-19. And if the whole population of the world were vaccinated, then that could create a situation where there is induced immunity and the threat disappears. But 
It will take at least 18 months, according to best predictions, for such a vaccine to become developed, to be tested, to be found safe, and then to be manufactured in sufficient amounts so that everybody can be immunized. So for the time being, it really is a case of being ready to respond quickly and to try to prevent outbreaks from becoming entrenched, to prevent it being necessary to have physical distancing through shutdowns or lockdowns so that societies can survive, remain safe in the face of the threat and wait until the time that we hope will come in the not too distant future when a vaccine is available. I wonder if with this coronavirus, again, it will run, we contain it as best as possible, but at the end of the day, it will run a normal course and then we can give people hope that in years to come, we will have a greater immunity against this virus naturally so that we will be able to essentially not just contain it, but reduce its effect on our population and its health. Well, let's start with a different virus, influenza. The way in which an influenza pandemic tends to evolve is that at the beginning, it's quite unpleasant and causes quite widespread illness. And then over time, it settles down in society and it becomes much less severe. And then gradually more and more people develop antibodies against the particular influenza virus and immunity builds up across the population. And then a new influenza virus tends to come along and you get the same issue. And then again, immunity develops across the population. And usually these influenzas have a rather kind of beneficial habit of becoming less and less potent as time elapses. This coronavirus is different. It seems to be a stable virus. It has really quite a high lethality and it's very transmissible indeed. So waiting until everybody has had the coronavirus, until there is a large number of people immune to it in our world, isn't really a feasible control strategy. Instead, it would be likely to lead to a lot of suffering and and damage to society. That's why the way in which we approach this one requires us to be on constant alert. And constant alert means basically like having a fire brigade ready to deal with fire outbreaks when they occur. You can never be comfortable that you're not going to need the fire brigade as long as there is inflammable material and the weather is right, uh, then you will get more fires. So just as one needs a fire brigade because of the threat of fires, we need a public health capacity because of the effect of viral diseases. And we will need capacity to protect us from this COVID-19 virus for the foreseeable future. The only way in which there will be total immunity built up in the population that I'm anticipating is if there is a vaccine against it and everybody can be vaccinated. The other way that we might end up with widespread immunity is if the COVID spreads into all corners of the world. But we should, I think, not be anticipating that and we should instead be making sure everybody has the necessary capacity to fight it through public health services. Because if we did have a situation where it went everywhere and affected everyone, the consequences for people's health, 
and the consequences for nations would be very serious indeed. You were also special envoy on Ebola, and I'm looking at a graph which I will share with our viewers on how contagious coronavirus is in relation to other diseases that our species has been able to deal with. And if you look at coronavirus, again, like you said, it causes something around 2% death in the population, whereas polio and smallpox were up to 5 to 7% and measles 12 to 18%. How is it that this, this virus has become such a threat to humanity that we can't create this natural immunity and we need the vaccination? How is it that you were able or we were able as a population to eradicate smallpox and nearly eradicate polio. Coronavirus is context within the context of other diseases that we've been able to overcome as a species and develop immunity against. And what needs to happen now in order to mitigate, but I guess also move toward the end game of eradication. So let's start with Ebola. The situation with Ebola is that it is present in bat populations in many communities and there's always a threat that there will be a jump of Ebola from a bat somewhere into the human population and an Ebola outbreak will happen. And we have to, as soon as that occurs, be very ready to try to end an outbreak by interrupting transmission. Uh, we can assist that process by vaccination now, but the world will always be a threat from Ebola because there's still going to be a lot of people who've not had the disease, a lot of people who've not been vaccinated, and it's a constant threat that we have to live with. And that's the case for many other viral diseases. They are threats to human well-being. The reason why this one is a particularly difficult threat is that it is so easily transmissible from person to person and outbreaks build up at very great speed. And because of the very large numbers who get infected quickly and the fact that about 20% of those infected get really quite ill, the most immediate consequence of an outbreak of COVID-19 is overload of hospital services, which in turn creates a challenge for everybody because it means that you can't treat other illnesses and you also have a challenge because these overloaded hospital services can't cope and an awful lot of the people with COVID-19 then end up dying. You see, the death rate from COVID-19 is 2% calculated on figures from Wuhan, but we know that it is likely that in places that haven't got the hospital services needed to treat people with the disease, the death rate would be much higher. It's really important that people do not try to compare COVID-19 with other diseases and say, oh, well, these other diseases cause more illness. The rapidity with which COVID-19 spreads and the number of people who get ill and the impact on hospital services everywhere make it absolutely essential 
for outbreaks to be contained as quickly as possible. We will not be able to move towards reducing the threat fully unless there is widespread immunization of populations. And that, as I said, is 18 months away. I just want to take a moment to honor the people that have been working like you and other health professionals globally, locally, because not only do those on the front line put themselves at risk, but also those that are trying to strategically find a way in the background to not only, like you say, contain and sort of control the crisis at hand, but also to be thinking about the long-term future and how do we recreate, you know, an infrastructure of healthcare, which is going to be vital for not only addressing this disease, but I'm sure other viruses in the future. Just for a moment, I want to turn to the January 1st, 2020 wish of Dr. Tedros, who's the Director General of the World Health Organization, in his address to healthcare workers around the world, 18 million people. He said that it's really important for us to invest in our healthcare professionals, to train, to employ more people in this field for exactly these kinds of crises which could occur. And yet he also speaks to the benefits of investing in healthcare workers both on the ground and those that are working globally like yourself in a strategic way. Could you speak a bit to the need to really focus on growing and educating and repurposing the healthcare resources globally in order for us to think about creating infrastructure change that's going to help us in the future to deal with these kinds of crises? Thank you very much indeed. Let me just start with the healthcare workforce and then I'd like to talk about the healthcare infrastructure. First of all, according to my analysis, there's quite a lot of healthcare workers in the world. If you draw the circle wide, it's about 59 million and 75% of these are women. Uh, we are hugely dependent in humanity on women to ensure that we can access the healthcare we need when we need it. In an infectious disease outbreak, the people who are most at risk health-wise are always the healthcare workers. And this is both men and women healthcare workers uh, hugely at risk as a result of this disease. One of the things that's necessary is that they have the protective equipment that is required to keep safe. And that includes personal protective equipment, as well as masks, in order to stop the virus being transmitted from sick people to the care worker. There's an absolute requirement right now to make sure that there is sufficient protective equipment for all healthcare workers in all countries. There's a shortage. And there's also a big anxiety that the material that should be going to healthcare workers, particularly in poor countries or to some of the less skilled healthcare workers, is just not available for them to keep safe. We've seen this before in other infectious diseases. So an absolute requirement for the functioning healthcare infrastructure is access to the necessary supplies. Linked to that is the equipment that's needed to treat people with COVID-19, of which ventilators 
and oxygen together with devices to measure the oxygen concentration of the blood. That's also absolutely essential. And then we have to think about the well-being of healthcare workers. Are they given the proper respect that they need in society? Some of them are very low paid. And have they got support to get transport to work, especially if transport is reduced because of a lockdown? Have they got ways of ensuring that their children are looked after because the schools are closed? Who else is going to look after their children? And is there sufficient support to them so that if they need to buy food, they're not queuing in supermarkets? Are they able to get the sleep that they need? Because so often healthcare workers are working enormously long shifts because of the demands of this COVID-19. And all these challenges for healthcare personnel and the health system build up because you've got outbreaks increasing massively in communities and that can be prevented. There's no need to have these huge overload situations. And it could be prevented by having good quality community-based public health services supported by community volunteers. If we've got good quality public health, then the amount of transmission of COVID-19 in the community is much reduced. The burden on healthcare services is much reduced and the danger to healthcare workers is much reduced. But to do that, governments have to be prepared to invest in basic community-level public health services. That investment in many nations is nothing like what it should be. It's too low. And that's one of the reasons why our world is susceptible to an outbreak leading to a pandemic like this one. We just haven't, as a community, as a world, invested sufficiently in basic public health services to defend us. And that, in turn, has led to the high burden on hospitals and healthcare workers that we're seeing all over the world. I love the fact that you've just put a shout out to not only governments to help finance and local to national, international organizations to finance the healthcare world, and that it really does take community volunteer effort to essentially also provide value and respect back to those healthcare professionals that have put their, like you said, lives and lifestyles and family on the line. So it really does take a collective effort by all. I'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you again about responsibility and solidarity in our communities and how we can not only show up to the healthcare professionals, but to our societies as a whole through our own collective effort to support the health of our communities. So thank you. Thank you very much indeed. And um, I look forward to talking again. I think there are some big challenges for our next conversation, particularly the difference in the way in which poorer nations with weaker economies, less of their populations in regular employment and less well-developed hospital services, for them, this COVID-19 pandemic could be extremely serious. We keep hoping that transmission in uh, different countries will perhaps be less intense, but I am particularly concerned about the situation 
and where things are going at this time. And I look forward to having a further conversation with you on what this means for our global society and also what it means for communities all over the world. Thanks, David. Have a great day. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to our Natural Intelligence Worldwide podcast. You can find us at naturalintelligence.com forward slash worldwide. Have a beautiful day.